Welcome to the Renovatio podcast. I am your host, Esme Partridge, and today I have the honour of speaking to Hassan Spiker. Hassan Spiker is a lecturer at Zaytuna College. He's also a PhD candidate at Cambridge and is also the author of a number of books, including Things As They Are, Nafs al-Amr and The Metaphysical Foundations of Objective Truth, and most recently has published a book entitled Hierarchy and Freedom, an examination of some classical, metaphysical and post-enlightenment accounts of human autonomy. So today we're going to be talking a bit about the concept of objective truth in Islam. What does that mean, not only in Islam, but also in other philosophical traditions, both pre-modern and modern? And how can we access objective truth? Is this something which is even possible in this life? So I think to begin, it might be worth just asking the, the, the question, what is the Nafs al-Amr? This is the title of your, if I may say so, absolutely incredible book, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. But, but what, what does Nafs al-Amr mean uh, and what is its relation to objective truth? Nafs al-Amr is, is really one of the most important concepts in Islamic philosophical tradition. And it hasn't been explored very much. The philosophical richness that's latent in the whole area hasn't really been explored very much. But I think it's a concept which has the capacity to really contribute to contemporary philosophical discourse and, and even to really go a long way to genuinely start to solve some of the tricky problems that we're facing in the, in the general intellectual impasse that many feel that we're going through. But Nafs al-Amr, I hate to say it literally means anything, because it doesn't really, but yeah, you can translate it as the thing as it is, or I don't like to say things in themselves for obvious reasons, it sounds like can't, but things as they are, the thing as it really is. But it's also used as a term not denoting one specific thing, what is it in itself, but rather the domain of objective truth. And then, you know, it, it, it implies this distinction between appearance and reality that there is a domain which is objective truth. It's, it has ontological import. And then there's our human perspectives, which try to more or less correspond to that realm. And then the, the, the question becomes, well, what is that realm? Is it something imminent? Is it something immediately accessible to ordinary human experience? Or is it something necessarily transcendent? Do we, in a way, have to change in order to be able to access that world? So in a way, that's the distinction between, very broadly, the Masha'i approach, the peripatetic approach to methodology, not only in Islamic philosophy, but in philosophy writ large, and the very broad Platonic or Ishraqi approach, where you know, in the latter, in the Platonic approach, purification is seen as a sin qua non in the obtainment of genuine knowledge, right? It's absolutely necessary. You can't just be an armchair metaphysician who doesn't do any work on himself. 
And so that's that's that's, that's quite a different, a fundamental different thing. So that will that will change one's conception of Nafsul Amad. If one adheres to a broadly Mashe'i or peripatetic, in the broadest sense, I don't mean particularly Aristotle, but in the broadest sense, one might well argue that one is one is confined to that imminent domain. It's not possible to transcend it according to the you know, the tools available to you within that broad philosophical methodology. Thank you very much. So I think that brings us on to a question which is often quite con- contested in many, many different schools of philosophy and especially in the, in, within is, in the Islamic tradition because Ibn Rushd talks about this. What is the distinction between philosophy and revelation in terms of arriving at the truth? I mention Ibn Rushd because he's often associated with a so-called double truth theory, which, which some have maybe legitimately or not said, said anticipates some even enlightenment attitudes towards religion. But that's possibly a conversation for another day. But in general, the, this idea that religion and philosophy may perhaps lead to the same place, what, what do you make of that? Do you think that philosophy can help the mind to ascend to objective truth or, or is it limited? And, and in what ways is it limited compared to what we can obtain through through revelation or indeed through what you seem to be describing as a kind of illumination or a Ishraqi platonic approach where you're really ascending to to a plane which is completely supra-philosophical. Uh, it's, it's above discursive rationality and philosophy altogether. Well, I mean, I know... From what I know of your research, you're very familiar with the distinction between noesis and dianoia. So one might call it supra-philosophical, but again, as 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 I, I think um, you'd probably agree, it, it just depends on how broad one considers the scope of philosophy to be. So, yeah, noesis is a is a higher form of reason, which it may be questionable whether it's even correct to call it reason, but it's an intuitive, direct relation to the metaphysical realm and metaphysical truth, what you call haqqa'ib in the Islamic tradition. And it's what dianoia, which is ordinary discursive reasoning, just reasoning in a straight linear line, every A is B, every B is C, so every A is C, one plus one equals two, that kind of thing. That, that presupposes the realm of noose, it presupposes intellect, but that is a, the, our reasoning in that fashion, in, in that discursive fashion, is a consequence of our embodiment. It is from the level of soul, the level of motion, because that's the type of thinking that involves a motion from premises to a conclusion. So I, perhaps that's something we could explore a little bit more when we discuss the distinction between the peripatetic and the, the Ishraqi method. It's not just so that it doesn't come across that the Platonic method is just a pure mysticism. It is rationally explicable. It just involves a faculty holism and the kind of broader conception of the nature of reason. But, you know, what is the, 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 the relationship between revelation and metaphysics? I always like to say there's absolutely no competition or antagonism it's not it's never an either or choice it's rather that revelation is the thing which is as it were coming down to us right and metaphysics is us going up to the revelation to meet it essentially 
And so I think it was Samuel Taylor Coleridge who said that you know, reason is just another species of revelation. And I think that's a very valid understanding from within the Islamic tradition as well and other philosophical traditions in that reason is construed as a light, a God-given light, which allows you to uncover the intrinsic intelligibility of the world. And as such, the highest thing it can recognize is God's direct communication to us, which would be revelation. And yeah, there's a, there's a gigantic qualitative difference. You know, our metaphysical activity recognizes that the revelation is something radically higher just because of the, you know, what we'd call baraka, the grace which is associated with the revelation, which is, which is encountered rather in, in the revelation. Thank you very much. And I'm really glad that you mentioned reason, because I think coming at a perspective which is often quite critical of modern philosophy and of the Enlightenment, I think people tend to see reason and, and rationality as sometimes certainly concepts which have become misappropriated. And what you've just touched on there is, I think, another aspect of reason, which I think people who are theologically minded actually can deeply appreciate, which is this idea of reason as, as a light, as something which illuminates. And when you said that, it, it actually made me think of the Cambridge Platonist Nathaniel Culverwell, who I think said something very similar about reason being the the sort of a sort of candle. Reason is is a, a sort of imminent light. It's it's this this guiding source of illumination which can actually bring us to the truth. So if I if I may ask, how how would you distinguish this understanding of reason, which is which is really has a has a noetic, illuminative quality to it? How would you how would you distinguish that from a kind of modern understanding of reason, which tends to actually be quite quite severed from from any higher truth? It's it's a more sort of more concerned with 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 imminence and, and how things how things are. There doesn't seem to be a kind of a connection between between reason and, and a higher truth. Could you speak a bit a bit more about that? Absolutely. I mean that's a that's just a very, very key question today, especially in a culture that or in you know, broad modernity, which has always wanted to portray itself as somehow kind of paradigmatically rational and reasonable. Whereas there, there are a lot of interesting in perspectives in the histories of the emergence of modernity, which paint not only a picture that questions that narrative, but it's actually almost an opposite picture that actually there's a kind of subtle war on reason as traditionally understood going on in the emergence of modernity. But various writers have discussed this in very interesting ways. I mean, Charles Taylor talks about, broadly speaking, rationality and reason in broad modernity as instrumental reason. And that's something I'll return to in a second. But the, the, the most recent work, which I've, I think is really extremely groundbreaking is Arbogast, Schmitt's Modernity and Plato, Two Paradigms of Rationality. It's just an absolutely fantastic book. 
And that is exactly about this question, two paradigms of rationality. So the fundamental he distinction he makes there is between Platonic Aristotelian reason, which I think is being very generous to Aristotle, but anyway, Platonic Aristotelian reason, and this broad modern conception of reason. Now, that broad modern conception of reason is a form of reason which actually attempts, broadly speaking, of course, to reduce the what, what would traditionally be called the intelligible world, our intelligible, you know, nonsensible intellectual apparatuses and tools, tries to subordinate them to the empirical particular and to somehow... Well, I mean, they're abstracted in that model from the empirical particular, but in a sense, their reality really reduces to the empirical particular. So you can see how there's a kind of anticipation of positivism and the Vienna Circle and and and, and those and, and and before that Kant, of course. But it's a it's the idea that, as J. N. Findlay would put it, who's a big critic of of well. I mean, he, 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 he sees Aristotle as the primary culprit. So there are obviously kind of differences of interpretation. I don't think Arbogast Schmidt would quite agree with that. But it's this notion that the intelligible is on that, 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 that kind of deterioration of, of the understanding of reason is actually parasitic upon the physical thing and somehow reduces to the physical thing. Now, as Arbogast Schmidt depicts it, what that means is that some, the, the empirical particular matter, you know, nature, the, the physical thing, becomes this kind of almost mystical substratum, which, as he puts it, always exceeds in its reality any of our mental attempts to represent it. So... The, the the ultimate reality is for the individual empirical particular, right? Anything we might use in order to, to represent it, like, for example, talking about the universal nature, we look at lot of, lots of individual human beings, and then we talk about the nature, human nature, the essence of human. On that model, that will always be extremely suspect, it will always contain that working out of, let's say, the definition of human nature and, you know, comparing human nature to, to, to other essences that we encounter in the world to try to better determine what it is. That intellectual activity will, is, is ultimately futile because it will always contain less reality than that original intuition of the empirical particular, right? So... Whereas he contrasts that with the Platonic Aristotelian, what he considers the Platonic Aristotelian conception of reason, which is rooted in the, most fundamentally, the principle of non-contradiction and in the idea of rational discrimination. Not a very good word today, but ra rational distinguishing between one distinct essence and another in that the world presents itself naturally because of its 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 intrinsic intelligibility it it presents itself to us as distinct right and then that that empirical intuition which is you know our our immediate relation to to the the empirical object is simply 
a pre-scientific, what they call a pre-scientific ingredient of our subsequent, the subsequent fullness of our knowledge. So our empirical knowledge just becomes one ingredient. It's only after the rational reflection that we can, that we make contact with an intelligible world and actually uncover the essence. So the empirical part on that earlier model, on the, that traditional notion of reason is only one component in the production of the uncovering of our knowledge. But knowledge really involves uncovering the intelligible object. So what that means is the intelligible object is not there in the empirical world. That actually means transcending the empirical world to make contact with this intelligible essence. So it's a very different attitude. It can be summed up. I know it's a little bit complex possibly, but it can be summed up in the distinct, in, in saying what is really primary is the empirical sensible world, the physical world, which is broadly the early modern approach. And, and reason is just this very, very fallible instrument that's, that you know, tries to make sense of the empirical world. Whereas the earlier model is no, the sensible world is subordinated to the, to the, to a broader intelligible world. The intelligible world is the real world. It's the, it's the empirical world, which is a kind of limitary branch of that intelligible world. Thank you very much. So are you saying in essence then that attaining things as, as they are and, and coming closer to, to reality in the objective sense, is that, is that ultimately a matter of transcending reason? Then, because I think this is—I think we're covering quite a lot of complex philosophical and, well, precisely epistemological ground about what what are the limits of of reason. And I think a recurring theme, which you speak about in your book, between both both Platonism and the Islamic tradition, is this idea that there is ultimately something beyond the the discursive, the the rational, the rational mind. And you give a quote from Ibn Arabi, which I think sort of sums up what I was getting at in the last question as well, but, but maybe worth discussing more now. So this is, this is, I believe, from the Futuhat. Arabi says, Intellects have a limit at which they must come to a halt insofar as they are discursive, not insofar as they are receptive. So there's this implication here that there is a, a purpose of discursive thinking. It can take us up to a certain point. And indeed, as you've said, there is a, a certain kind of platonic Aristotelian rationality which, which can ascend, ascend our minds beyond, beyond the immediate sensible world. But that is, that is limited and there has to be something, something higher, some part of the mind which is above reason. I think this is probably an appropriate time to talk about a concept which exists in both European and Islamic thought, particularly in the Middle Ages, which is the idea of the active intellect, or sometimes called the agent intellect. This idea that there's a, a part of the mind which is, I mean, perhaps you can describe it in better terms, but is superior to discursive thinking, which is ultimately contingent on sense objects and the things that we we encounter physically and mentally, it's, it's, it's superior to that. So could you talk a bit about, about this concept of the agent intellect or the active intellect and how that can help us come closer to, to things as they are and objective truth? Would that be, would that be is, that, is that clear as a question? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, well, I mean, you know, the, the agent intellect is introduced by Aristotle in Dianema. It's about two paragraphs. 
it, they're kind of you know they're some of the most contested two paragraphs in the history of philosophy because obviously people came to radically different conclusions about the identity of the agent intellect. He was pretty clear on its function, I suppose, but it's a very ambiguous passage. It's also interesting that this is usually considered to be an academic passage in Aristotle's oeuvre in the sense that it was probably written during his time at the academy. And it, it's it's about as platonic as Aristotle gets, really, the, the agent intellect. But as you say, I mean, for some thinkers, it's a part of the soul. That's in, for example, Thomas Aquinas, whereas for, for others... Yeah, Averroes considered the agent intellect to be one in all of humanity, and we we become absorbed back into the agent intellect. That's the only way that we manage to be immortal. That was obviously very, very controversial. And you know, for Ibn Sina, who is obviously much more influential in the Muslim world than Ibn Rushd, it's actually a separate tenth intellect, which is has a dual function. It's both wahib al in the sense that it bestows the forms of things, the essences of things on the world of nature so that the world becomes intelligible. And the other thing it does also, you know, it also bestows the corresponding universals upon us when we're in the process of trying to know something. So the, the basic idea of the agent intellect is that we are finite beings with an empirical dimension relating empirically to a particular empirical world. Everything's particular. And that universality cannot be bestowed upon us by that particularity in itself. And so it contains a universality, but that universality is only potential. And so to to bring that potency into act, you require an agent intellect to illuminate you, to illuminate your mind, and to activate that universality, which is latent in the particular things. It's not, for me, the the most elegant theory. I, I prefer proper Platonism. The interesting thing is that, interestingly, Ibn Sina was was accused of Platonism by two very loyal Aristotelians, Aquinas and Ibn Rushd, quite separately, they accused Ibn Sina of Platonism because his doctrine of the agent intellect was, was seemed to be so platonic. It's actually an external intellect, which you know, an actual ontological being, which is on a higher level of existence and bestows this intelligibility, very much like platonic forms. But I think just arguably less coherent and clear. I mean, the platonic forms are, are actually distinct entities in, a, in a, a, a distinct realm of being, whereas because of Ibn Sina's Aristotelian allegiance, he had to make the agent intellect an individual being. But in any case, it, it, as you say rightly, I mean, it's still the same concept, broadly speaking, which is that we can't naturalize knowledge. Knowledge actually requires a relation to a transcendent realm, irreducibly. So that's present even there with that agent intellect doctrine. Absolutely. Thank you for doing such a good job of explaining what, as you say, is a very varied concept and and nobody seems to exactly be able to to touch on what, what the agent intellect is. And I think it's safe to say that in the modern world, 
the idea of some faculty within the human beings which has direct access to a truth which is in augustine's word was you know above our minds outside of our minds he he describes which in a way which i think has been compared to the idea of the active intellect describes truth as being being a light which is above above the mind and it's and we're we're simply receiving it and and this goes back to ibn arabi's idea of receptivity as opposed to discursivity but all of these ideas that we've spoken about basically point to a pre-modern consensus that there is something within human beings or in the case of the active intellect it's kind of outside of the human being but it's something that we have access to perhaps rather than within that can connect us to the ultimate reality of things there's this idea that we can know of course not to a total extent or in a total realization but we can glimpse at least let's say things as they are you mentioned Luther's interpretation of original sin and i actually think this is hugely significant in terms of the west's i suppose a loss of touch with with things as they are with objective truth and i think you actually see it coming out quite distinctly in locke because a lot of people overlook the fact that locke's blank slate theory so called blank slate theory that the tabula rasa basically comes from quite an extreme interpretation of original sin which is that human beings are so fallen that we've lost the intuitive direct knowledge which pre-lapsarian man would would once have had and that actually ends up being locke's justification for a particular kind of of rationalism really he says well we can't we can never no we we don't have intuition this is basically the basis of locke's anti-platonism we don't have innate ideas because we lost those in the fall and perhaps as i say not not to go on sort of too much of a detour but i do i have to wonder is one of the reasons why in islamic philosophy there hasn't been so much of a kind of discourse about human beings are fundamentally severed from objective truth and we we can absolutely never have any contact with things as they are i do wonder if that that's partly because in islam one doesn't have to sort of work around the concept of original sin whereas whereas i think with this really is a decisive factor for for luther as well as locke as this idea that we're so severed from 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 truths and our intuitions which can connect us to them that that we have to sort of reconstruct everything through through empiricism i i don't know if you could sort of briefly do, do you think that do you think there's some truth in that do you think that that original sin question has implications for the western tradition in a way which it perhaps doesn't in in islam well, i think it's a very interesting insight i didn't know i don't really i've never really considered the relationship of you know locks thoughts on original sin his position on original sin i i will mention that in this new book that's just come out the the last chapter is all about lock and the central chapter is all about abergashmit's two paradigms of rationality so I think that this this may be relevant reading for people who've watched this podcast but I mean Locke is a very very important pivotal figure for so many different reasons the issue of original sin is obviously very important you know in Islam we have the doctrine of the fitra in its place which is interpreted very often as very capacity to accept the truth to accept the beautiful to accept the good and that that innate dis- 
dispositedness to, you know, it's that, that innate disposition towards the truth. And so I, I think that, 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 that does play a very important role. I mean, it's not the case that original sin is clearly a, I mean, it's very much associated with Augustine in Christianity. Not every Christian thinker has, has thought that, that it's a, a necessary Christian doctrine. In fact, there's a very famous English, very early English theologian called Pelagius who didn't think so. But he's, of course, considered to be heretical. But, but his, 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 the, some of his doctrines are, are quite close to Islam. But, of course, I, I think it, it, it plays a profound role. I think these theological doctrines play a huge philosophical role, and I think that that's not usually emphasized enough. I'm working on a project in the kind of metaphysical foundations of ethics within the Islamic tradition. It's also a comparative ethics with a Muslim philosopher, Muhammad Hamor, at the moment. And he actually very much emphasizes the role of original sin in giving rise to what he calls arbitrarism in ethics. Because broadly speaking, it's just the idea that we are not only fundamentally inclined to dissolute behavior, but we are also barred from access to the criterion which would allow us to make sure that we avoid it, essentially. Not to make things too simplistic or, or a kind of polemic against Christianity. But yes, I think I mean, these are very interesting issues that, that, that you, I'd need to write a few books about before I can really say anything useful. Well, thank you. No, I think I think that that general point about theology actually having such a a huge impact on on modern philosophy and you know even on Enlightenment philosophy, I think Locke is actually a very good example of someone who is often framed as a as a kind of proto secular thinker, but is you know deeply informed by this particular reading of Original Sin. In any case, I think you've done an incredible job of of covering what is you know very very complex theological and philosophical ground about why are we here today in a in a world where we are we have lost touch with with objective truth for whatever reason and I think we've touched on just a few of those reasons I think that that leads quite nicely into my final question for you which is in a world which has I think it's fair to say very much lost touch with objective truth not not purely in a in a sort of enlightenment sense because of course there are in in the enlightenment there are still claims to objective truth in a certain way of course it's an immanentized form of truth but i mean certainly kant was accused of of pushing this sort of universal you know transcendental subjectivity and much of postmodernism is i suppose a, a reaction against that enlightenment claim to objective truth so now we're in a world where not only do we have the the enlightenment pretenses of a kind of objective truth, which actually really furthers us from from real objective truth, but we're also in a postmodern world where th- there's there's no no concept of it at all. So so my question for you, I mean we're both we're both writing in in Western context, I suppose. I'm I'm in the UK. You're in you're in Berkeley. Both very postmodern places. And what would you say to people in those environments in a world which has just completely lost touch? with things as they are, with metaphysical truths. What would you say that we can can do to, to get back in touch? I think we just need to subject some of the fundamental assumptions we are 
given by postmodernity to careful scrutiny. And I think just perhaps stop accepting them as first principles when they're really just unsupported assumptions. And I think the most fundamental one for me now is the one that I've kind of settled on as the key fundamental assumption, which is more than anything else taking us away from traditional conceptions of of the availability of objective truth and human perfectibility and 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 really the spirit more and religion more broadly is this distinctively modern conception of human freedom especially as it's evolved into what's called the postmodern age which is i would call this arbitrarist freedom it's basically the idea, I mean, it's summed up very memorably with, by Brad Gregory again. I mean, this is, I really owe him one for this quote because I, I, I repeat it all the time. It's really a wonderful expression. He says that the, the supreme value in modern liberal societies is free choice per se, regardless of what is chosen. And it's very interesting because it's actually that regardless of what, what is chosen, that arbitrary element there is the key element and you will be opposed in fact the only limit to your freedom is when you start saying i have an objective criterion then you're not allowed that that's a problem because there's this understanding somehow that's going to lead to authoritarianism or totalitarianism or some sort of quasi-fascism as you were saying this is a kind of liberal consensus and this is you know the world that we in which we live and move and have our being it's it's a world in which arbitrary freedom, it's not only a political or social or ethical stance, it's actually a metaphysical, it has ontological import. It's a fundamentally metaphysical worldview, which is the idea that we, the only thing we have real, genuine, certain, proximate, direct access to is our individual will as individual human beings and everything else all of these institutions and this idea of god and this idea of of you know the sacred nature of of marriage and the family and you know that there are that there's gender that there are distinct essences in the world that's all a social con- construct it's all these are all social conventions which have been falsely concretized so that people imagine that they're real things and in that on that conception of freedom all that can do that false concrete concretization that false reification all it can do is hamper our freedom right because because all that we have real access to is the individual will. So it's this kind of voluntarism. The will is prior to any putative, alleged nature of things or essences. Any attempt to impose a so-called, an alleged, acclaimed nat- nature of things upon us from without is simply a form of oppression. And it, and it can only be motivated by power interests. And so you get the whole, you know, whole picture of the, of the modern discourse when it comes to of the contemporary discourse on which you know broadly we'd call constructionism and 
you know, it's that arbitrary conception of reason which, you know, that's the, 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 the I try to trace the lineage of that a little bit in my most recent book, and, and then the project I'm working on on comparative ethics, we go into more detail <laughs> on that, but it's interesting that this comes out, this is the most recent manifestation of that historical process that we were talking about um, earlier. And I think, you know, just to start to question that modern narrative about freedom is is really, really important because the liberal consensus, I mean, if you think of key thinkers there, you've got, for example, J.S. Mill, you've got Isaiah Berlin, you have Popper in his, you know, The Open Society where the great enemy is Plato and, and Hegel, and and... And, and you have rules, John Rawls, right? These are possibly the, the, the four most important thinkers in kind of shaping the liberal consensus. But the, the, the interesting thing is, you know, that classic and very, very influential article by Isaiah Berlin about positive and negative freedom, well, you know, he's opposed to any form of positive freedom. It has to be negative freedom. Anything else will lead to totalitarianism. So, you know, negative freedom just purely means non-interference. Again, that, that feeds in perfectly to Brad Gregory's statement about the supreme value in modern liberal society. It's free choice per se, regardless of what is chosen, because the modern state, liberal state, democratic state, exists solely to facilitate that arbitrary free choice. Right, that non-interference, it, it exists solely to, to, to facilitate that arbitrary free choice. Now, it's very interesting, as I Berlin is saying, any form of positive freedom is, is too much of a danger. You can impose it upon yourself, but it can never be put forward as objective truth on any universal level. The extraordinary thing is that means you are not allowed to say that human reason or intellect is superior to impulse and instinct. Because, you know, the most fundamental mo traditional model of freedom, at least in the Islamic tradition, I suspect it's probably almost identical in traditional Christianity and Judaism, because I know that they also, that the tripartite soul was absolutely established in their understanding. But, but you know, the, the, the traditional conception of freedom in the Islamic tradition you know, is summed up beautifully by Mamal and it appears much earlier in the tradition as well, but it's basically, he says, in the final analysis, the free person, who's the free person? The free person is man qahra shahwatahu. It's the person who's been able to conquer and subdue his desire, right? It doesn't mean to negate desire, say it's a bad and terrible thing, but rather it doesn't rule our higher self. It doesn't rule our, our and, and, and it doesn't rule out by dominating us so much, our ability to even pursue higher goals. And so that notion of self-mastery, Charles Taylor has a very influential article called What's Wrong with Negative Liberty, where he starts to, I mean, it's basically in terms of an analysis of self-mastery and the fact that you can't just talk about outward obstacles to freedom in the sense of non-interference because there may also be inward obstacles. That's how he puts it. The problem is the inward obstacles. So I think it's just, you know, it's actually very liberating if you're, you know, you're asked about how 
people can start to move towards resolving this problem? Well, the first thing is just resolve it within ourselves. The first thing is to take control of our own freedom and to realize that what we're being told is freedom is not freedom. It's really just sound bites, which really, you know, makes us very susceptible to enslavement, in all honesty. Because if you're told you are free to pursue whatever you want, but by the way, there's no real hierarchy of goods, everything's relative, and you know, there's only a relative conception of the good, so you're going to have to just pursue your own version and make it up as you go along. That flattening inclines, it, by, it gives the appearance of neutrality, but its real function is to incline people, to drive people towards an arbitrarism where what are you going to go for if the whole, the, the category of a higher self and higher goals has been invalidated and you, you've been told that's all just fantasy? The, your first recourse is, you know, going to be, our first recourse is going to be whatever gives us immediate gratification. If there's no higher, then, you know, let's just eat and drink and be merry and, and, and revel and enjoy our lives because, you know, it's all nothingness really at base and we're going we're gonna to die tomorrow. So we, we may as well enjoy it as much as, as possible, you know, in terms of the, the, the scope of enjoyment that we've been told is, is within the realms of possibility, which is just basically going to be physical gratification. So the point is that, ironically, that modern, broad modern arbitrary conception of, or arbitrarist conception of freedom leaves us open to manipulation much more open to manipulation than we, we would otherwise be on a traditional self-mastery model by media, by the modern education system, you know, by whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And, and I appreciate how you've bridged quite nicely there how the philosophical rejection of any kind of higher truth and indeed a higher self that would correspond to that truth has these implications when it comes to human free freedom and in particular, this kind of negative freedom, which denies that we can ascend in any way to some kind of better or higher self. I think on that note, I'm just going to just going to plug your re recent book one more time, as I, it, it covers all of these subjects. So that's called Hierarchy and Freedom, an examination of some classical, metaphysical and post-enlightenment accounts of human autonomy, published by New Andalus. So thank you so much again, Hassan, for coming on thank to this you. podcast. I think we've covered so much ground in such a way which I hope will be accessible. Cited a few few different books in here, which I've mentioned earlier in the podcast. So do keep keep an eye out for Hassan's upcoming work. Sounds like you're working on lots of exciting projects and lecturing at Zaytuna College at the moment. So thank you. Thank you once again and goodbye. Thank you very much, Esme. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs>